and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better as Brennan B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 107th episode of the Nauticast titled Brotherly Love Part 1, an analysis of a Clash of Kings Catlin 3, in which the rightful King of Westeros meets with the rightful Queen of Westeros, Catelyn Stark. This is uh, one, another one of our infamous two-parter episodes. It's not too surprising. Not only do we, of course, love talking about Stannis, but this is a really dense chapter with a lot to say, and a lot to say even before we get to Stannis and Renly, which unfortunately <laughs> we won't be doing next this week. We'll be getting to that next week. This episode, we're going to cut off right as Renly shows up, so we're going to cover Catelyn arriving at Storm's End, thinking through her mission, thinking through the backstory of the castle. We'll talk about that, and then we'll talk about the conversation she has with Stannis right before Renly shows up. Next week, we will talk about the Stannis-Renly showdown itself, Catelyn's conversation with Renly afterwards, and then the battle plan that emerges at Renly's camp. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman, Zack, Grand Maester, Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Ward of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Ward of the West of the Kraken's Bane, Lord James the Jim that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assistant to the Head of the King, Lady Zeta Valyria, Hedrical, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel of the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, Ward of the East and Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Amos, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedalica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing Dancer with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, LC the Blackwood Guard and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Dades and Gentlemen's, Lord Quint Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for Several Unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council. Haldivar, the waiter for Tiwau, A.A. Ron, Damp Hair Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crow's High, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the First of Her Name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Aurora, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser, and the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings. Shunwell the Slayer, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logus, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse-Faced Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Sir Veor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Waste, and our newest member of the Small Council. Everyone welcome Lord Peter to the Small Council. And thank you to Lord Peter, and thank you to all of our councillors. Thank you, councillors, as always, and welcome to Lord Peter. I hope that's not Lord Peter Baelish, of course. Because <laughs> if be- so, I don't, I don't know if you're going to be lasting too long here. We we will have to keep an eye on this guy. He he, we we're not definitely gonna have him be our master coin. That's for fucking sure. That's true. That position is taken. That'll limit the damage done. Good point. True that. So as always, our spoiler we say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three duck egg novels, histories, interviews, the Windsor Stamp chapters, as well as Game of Thrones the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir John of the Misty Isle, a sworn sword patron, who asks. Hi, I have a question for the upcoming Catelyn episodes. Why did Renly not support Stannis' claim to the throne? Before Jeff says it is because he is a traitor and terrorist, which of course he is, hear me out. To me, the logical move on Renly's part would be to put his weight behind the incest claim, back Stannis, and once he takes the Iron Throne, have him murdered and let Renly take the throne as the legitimate heir. 
Given that Renly is backed by plotters like Littlefinger and the Tyrells, this seems like a normal move on their part. Is there a good story reason for this, or is simply that a combined army of the Reach and Stormlands led by Stannis would be too powerful and end up with the Lannisters wiped out by the end of A Clash of Kings? So thank you very much, Sir John of the Mistale, for the question. And what do you make of that, Jeff? Is there a, a good in-character, in-story reason for Renly to not follow that strategy, or is it just because George needs him not to? I, I think it's primarily because George needs him not to. I mean, as much as George does a ton of work in making the Renly-Stannis dynamic as strong as it is and as captivating as a plot piece it is. I mean, consider how how much, and I'll talk about this, but how much it, it animates all of our passions. We still talk about Renly, Baratheon, Stannis, Baratheon, and Renly Baratheon has been technically dead, you know, in terms of literary time for 22 years, right? He died in 1998 at the end of Clash of Kings, the middle of Clash of Kings, right? Because we're in like the dead middle of, of Clash. But yet at the same time, Something else is that I think the dynamic is so strong and George does a really good job of ensuring that Renly and Stannis have such utterly different personalities in terms of how they interact with the world. And yet, as you've been pointing out over and over again, and you've been echoing Tyrion Lannister, they're a lot, they have a lot of similarities under the surface, under that kind of surface level dynamics. They are very similar. They're hardheaded. They're stubborn. They're very much Baratheons. And that is exactly why a person like Renly would not be able to get along with Stannis. And I think we also see starting early from a Game of Thrones that Renly is very clearly ambitious, is very clearly accumulating power for himself in the Game of Thrones, working with the Tyrells back in before we have the actual death of Robert Baratheon. And as we'll talk about in part two of this two-part episode, he was working ostensibly to plant Marjorie in Robert's bed, but likely there was a little bit of a deeper plot in, in mind, mean, namely to put Renly likely ahead of the line of succession and to have him then enter into the kingship after Robert dies with no natural heirs. So I, I, I totally get where, where you're coming from. Like in, in a perfect world, this we would work together. The Renly and Stannis would work together, but they're not necessarily going to work together because they're so different on the surface and so alike underneath the surface. What do you make of the question, sir? I think you'd make a great point in bringing up that line of Tyrion's. That definitely captures a lot of what's going on. Neither one of them wants to give an inch to the other. But I also think, why would Renly give Stannis an inch from his perspective? Why bend the knee even when you, if you plan to bump him off and take over later? What do you gain from that? We know as readers coming back that Stannis has a shadow baby threat in his back pocket, that Renly is in more danger than he knows, but he doesn't know that. From his perspective, Stannis is this ridiculous figure with a tiny army who is just posturing and can be dealt with easily. So he doesn't feel the need to even pretend to bend the knee, to even <laughs> damage his political standing that much, to even risk that much. He doesn't feel the need to. And while I certainly find Renly obnoxious, I think within his worldview and within his perspective, that makes complete sense. And I think that that's a great way of capturing how this chapter works as a whole, because regardless of whether your innate sympathies are for Renly or for Stannis or for both or for neither, George does a great job of putting you not in their shoes, but putting you in a position where you can understand how they reach the conclusions they reach. And that's part of what makes it such great drama and great tragedies. You're crying out for another way. But the way George constructs it leaves no room for any other way to happen. So thank you so much again, Sir John, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we'll answer here on the Not A Cast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level Patreon over at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf, where you can find show notes, Patreon posts, and bonus episodes. And speaking of bonus episodes, our next patron-only bonus episode, Snowman, our in-depth analysis of the Grand Northern Conspiracy, <laughs> 
is out now if you're listening on the general release date or coming out later this week if you're watching on the live stream. So come on over to patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F to find that and 25 other bonus episodes. That was a that was a really fun episode. And so thank you to you guys who are patrons for selecting it. I, I, I had so much fun actually doing it. It was it was it was great. And uh, if your episode, the one you voted for, wasn't picked, the one you loved, you know, stay tuned. We've got we're all we've always looking for ideas and the ones you guys suggested for us might be ones we might pick down the road for sure. But Enough about Patreon. Let's get to the main fucking event. When we last checked in with Catelyn Stark, she had arrived at Bitterbridge to find King <clears throat> Renly and his massive army parting away as Westeros burns around them because Renly is fucking awful. But King Stannis had interrupted Renly's fancy feast by besieging Storm's End. We wanted to actually introduce one to the synopsis, namely Chloe, a.k.a. Lies in Arbor, who is going to be playing the part of... Who are you playing the part of this week, Chloe? Uh, the person who has never been wrong ever in her life. Lady Catelyn Stark. <laughs> yes. What, what, she was wrong one time. One time. Yeah, yeah. Just one, one time. Once, twice, you know, 12. Who's counting, really? The point is, we're happy to have you, Chloe. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, it's going to be so much fun. Thank you, guys. Anyways, let's kick off this synopsis with this. Synopsis of Clash of Kings, Catelyn 3. The beady place was a grassy sward dotted with pale gray mushrooms and the raw stumps of felled trees. Catelyn, Hollis Mullen, and Sir Wendell Manderley are the first to arrive at the meeting ground between the two armies. Hollis holds the direwolf sigil above his head as the smell of salt fills the air around them. Catelyn take takes note of her surroundings and sees that Stannis Baratheon's forgers had cut down a grove of trees for their siege engines. She wonders if Ned came to this grove back when he marched on Storm's End to lift the siege at the end of Robert's Rebellion. That battle was bloodless, as the Tyrells and their vassals surrender rather than fight. God's grant that I shall do the same, Catelyn prayed. None of her men wanted her to come to this parlay, thinking it was too much of a risk, but Catelyn wasn't about to let some scaredy-cat bros tell her that she was at risk. Dude, everyone's at fucking risk, you spaghetti spines. Catelyn looks up at Storm's End, sees the massive walls, and then looks down and sees Stannis Baratheon's much smaller army encamped around the castle. And this leads Catelyn to serve as the instrument of George R. R. Martin's famous world-building, this time about Storm's End. You see, back in the day, Storm's End was originally built by Durin, the first Storm King who loved Elenai, the daughter of the sea god and goddess of wind. They fucked, and she became mortal. Her totally lame parents then sent storms against Storm's End as a result, and Elenai sheltered Durin. Then, hashtag team Durin, a super badass rebel who probably had his own car, declared war against the gods and rebuilt Storm's End five more times. And Elenai's parents kept fucking shit up and knocking over the castle. It was only during the seventh construction of Storm's End that Durin built a successful Storm's End with an assist from Bran the Builder. No matter how the tale was told, the end was always the same. Though the angry gods threw storm after storm against it, at the seventh castle stood defiant, and Durin, God's grief, and the fair Elenai dwelt there together until the end of their days. Gods do not forget. And still the gales came raging up the narrow sea, yet storms and endured through centuries and tens of centuries, a castle like no other. Storm's End's walls were a hundred feet high with stones smooth with no crevices, and the walls were thick with two seas, forty feet thick at their narrowest and eighty feet thick towards the sea, and there was only one tower, the sea drum tower, and it looked like an upthrust fist punching through towards the gods above. It's fucking metal, man. By then, Hal Mullen points out the two riders were approaching, and the wind off Shipbreaker Bay began to howl, began to howl. <laughs> that will be King Stannis. Catelyn watched them come. Stannis's must be, yet that is not the Baratheon banner. It was bright yellow and not the rich gold of Renly's standards, and the device it bore was red, though she could not make out its shape. Renly, little terror shit that he is, has already decided to be the last one to arrive. It was a game the kings played, but Catelyn ain't here to play games. She knew how to be patient and wait. 
Stannis wears a crown of red gold fashioned to points of fire at the top, and then he wears some jewelry, but the rest of his clothing was somber, plain. But as Stannis approaches, Catelyn then sees his banner and makes out the red heart surrounded by a blaze of orange fire with the stag small in the middle, and he had a companion with him, a, re a red priestess, and Catelyn finds that bizarre given how few followers of her lore were in Westeros. Lady Stark. Lord Stannis. Oh, hi, Chloe. I mean, hi, Lady Catelyn. So it's going to be fun to kind of do this here. I'll be playing the part of Stannis because I wore the shirt. And, and Chloe will be playing the part of Catelyn because she wore the banner behind her, I guess, so to speak, if you're watching the live cast. Beneath the tight-trimmed beard, his heavy jaw clenched hard, yet he did not hector her about titles. For that, she was duly grateful. I had not thought to find you at Storm's End. I had not thought to be here. His deep-set eyes regarded her uncomfortably. This was not a man made for easy courtesies. I am sorry for your lord's death, though Eddard Stark was no friend of mine. He was never your enemy, my lord. When the lords Tyrell and Redwine held you prisoner in that castle, starving, it was Eddard Stark who broke the siege. At my brother's command, not for love of me, Lord Eddard did his duty. I will not deny it. Did I ever do less? I should have been Robert's hand. That was your brother's will. Ned never wanted it. Yet he took it. That which should have been mine. Still, I give you my word. You shall have justice for his murder. Catelyn then muses that the men who would be kings love to promise heads, and she says as much to Stannis, commenting that Renly said the same. The Lannisters still hold Sansa, and there was no word about Arya since Ned's death. So Stannis promises to return Cat's daughters to her. Well, alive or dead, his tone seemed to imply. Still, Catelyn is a little surprised to find Stannis here at Storm's End instead of, say, back at Dragonstone or, you know, maybe attacking King's Landing. So why is he here? You are frank, Lady Stark. Very well. I shall answer you frankly. To take the city and need the power of these southern lords to see across the field. My brother has them. I must needs take them from him. Men give their allegiance where they will, my lord. Those lords swore fealty to Robert and House Baratheon. If you and your brother were to put aside your quarrel... I have no quarrel with Renly should he prove dutiful. I am his elder and his king. I want only what is mine by rights. Renly owes me loyalty and obedience. I mean to have it from him and from these other lords. Stannis studied her face. And what cause brings you to this field, my lady? Has House Stark cast its lot in my brother? Is that the way of it? This one will never bend, she thought. Yet she must try nonetheless. Too much was at stake. My son reigns as king in the north by the will of our lords and our people. He bends the knee to no man, but holds out the hand of friendship to all. Kings have no friends, only subjects and enemies. And that is the non-Renly half of A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 3. Chloe, thank you so much for coming on. That was so much fun having you play the part <laughs> of Catelyn Stark for the first part, because you will be back next week for the second part where Catelyn has even more dialogue and lines. And um, yeah, it was great. I loved it. It was so awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Have a good episode. See ya. Thank you very much. And next week I'll be on for Renly, too, so I'll be polishing <laughs> up my, my performance for that. But great work to both of you. Good job on Stannis, too, Jeff. Thank you, sir. Great work, everybody. All around. Yeah, it was, it was so much fun. And like, it's what better way to like do a little play acting than one of the best chapters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, dude. But I mean, yeah, and we didn't even get to the Stannis Renly portion of, of this episode. It was um amazing. Like just even like getting to the point, like it's that building of anticipation. Like I was feeling as I was writing the synopsis, I was just feeling the feels, the emotions and the kind of like that building anticipation and love for this chapter. Because this is one of the best chapters in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. And I mm -hmm. think you feel similarly. I kind of feel like the entire podcast has been a prologue up to this point, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you. So what makes this chapter so special? 
I was thinking on reread about what we as readers bring to the table, and how A Song of Ice and Fire has attracted readers willing to give it radically different levels of attention. These are bestsellers, so plenty of people read them in passing because they've just heard of them and then put them down without a thought. Other people come to them from the show. Other people come to them from the intense book fandom. Some people come from the show and then get into the intense book fandom like you did. Now, we might want to say that as you're writing, you should just write what you feel and try to gather an audience around that, rather than having a specific audience motivate your writing. And that's, I think, true in general, but realistically, a working writer writes with an audience in mind. George has worked in television, he knows the deal. The Holy Grail is appealing equally to casual and rabid readers, and that is what George achieves with A Clash of Kings, Catalan Three. You can look at this chapter as a trenchant philosophical examination of political systems in moments of crisis, captured in the standoff between rivals who represent different schools of thought on what it means to be king. Or you can look at this chapter as a total farce, two crowned man-children squabbling over their toys while the kingdom burns in the background and our maternal POV resists the urge to send them both to bed without supper. It's a masterpiece either way. What an accomplishment that is to succeed on such different levels of storytelling and so deliver a rewarding experience to both people taking all of this seriously and people not taking it seriously at all. A Clash of Kings Catalan 3 is like a perfect diamond glowing from every facet. Since all we're doing is just, you know, sitting inside watching movies now, I recently rewatched one of the most beloved movies of all time, The Rules of the Game, directed by Jean Renoir, a French movie from the 1930s. It's a perfectly executed farce. People of all social stations chasing each other around a beautiful countryside chateau. But it gets much emotionally heavier as it goes along, concluding in a murder, and it carries so much more weight when you know the backstory behind it. The director wanted to show a society on the brink of destruction in World War II, which was on the horizon as the film was being made. He described the movie as this combination of comic and tragic tones, as people dancing around the edge of an active volcano. A critic described it as a music box playing in a mass grave. I think A Clash of Kings Catalan Three achieves this exact same balance between satire and tragedy, and it puts me in mind of the most famous quote from Rules of the Game, the one a lot of people quote. The awful thing about life is that everyone has their reasons. And that's this chapter. That is exactly right. And that's really well said, sir. You know, Catelyn Three is George's. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, Catelyn Three is George's as political best. You know, he's doing both the politics, but he's embedding, he's kind of running it through the character work. And that really gets at the heart of the story that he's trying to tell. And then Catelyn Four is George's his magical best, showing us that our clashing kings can't stand against a partially operational magic force station. And then we get the debates. And I'm not just referring to Stannis and Renly and Catelyn bickering. I'm talking about the fans. Boy, do we get debates about these chapters, political and magical. Is Stannis justified? Is Renly justified? Who's actually right here? Is no one right? Is everyone right? Is one person right? Is it really dependent on the perspective of someone? So many goddamn debates. And you know that George struck literary gold with these chapters, Catelyn 3 and 4 specifically, because of how mm-hmm. it animates the passions of readers in the year 2020, a full 22 years after it was published in A Clash of Kings. That's a long time. And that leads me to my disappointment with, with this scene from the show. And look, I already know I'm beating a dead horse, but let's just get out of the way now so we don't have to talk about it in Catelyn 3 or 4, the next part for Catelyn 3 and the next part for Catelyn 4. So... Briefly, let's just talk about the show scene real quick compared to the book, and then we'll move on and just talk about this scene from the book's only perspective. I mean, have you ever, like, you know, just think about it broadly. Have you ever watched a movie based on a beloved written franchise, and it tries really hard to get the atmospherics correct, does amazing work with the costuming and casting, and hell, even borrows most of its dialogue from the source text, and yet still completely misses the point? 
Well, that's kind of how I feel about Zack Snyder's 2009 film Watchmen. <laughs> Perfectly timed. So go check out our episode on that at <laughs> patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. Absolutely. It was a really good episode if you guys want to listen to us talk about something not, not a song of ice and fire. But yes, I mean, I'm talking about this adaptation of this scene from Game of Thrones season two. I mean, boy. Oh, this scene. I mean, so much is spot on. The dialogue is 95% from Catelyn 3, and yet there are significant edits that shade Stannis entirely as the villain and Renly as the hero. And we get a possible answer as to why this is the case. From the inside of the episode feature, which has showrunner Dan Boyce declaring that Stannis would make a terrible king, and this is a direct quote, Renly has a somewhat more practical, enlightened view of what it means to rule, and he would make an unquestionably better ruler than Stannis. Mm, mm, mm. It's really hard to swallow. Anyways, we'll talk more about that when we do our patron only, which actually is not going to be patron only, but our episode about Book Renly versus Show Renly to, and the, on our patron side at the towards the end of next month, which of course will also be live stream. But consider this my opening salvo on this topic. I'm going to return to this, okay? But on a more understandable level, the Game of Thrones did end up excising most of the world building and lore surrounding storms in, which it had to because they had to save time on season two, episode four. But that is not the tack that George R. R. Martin takes as he opens this chapter in A Clash of Kings, Catelyn 3. Yes, I mean, one of the things I love so much about Clash of Kings, as you may have been able to tell, is just the rush of new, new settings, new locations, new backstory. You can feel George's excitement in this expanding world. And a lot of what he does there, he does through Catelyn's eyes. Remember, Catelyn back in book one was our first eyes inside the walls of Winterfell, our first eyes on King's Landing, our first eyes on the Vale, our first eyes on the Twins and River Run and Moat Caelan. At Clash of Kings, we've already seen her be our first eyes on the Reach, and now she is our first set of eyes on the Stormlands and its central castle, Storm's End. Catelyn III is not set in the castle of Storm's End, of course. It's set a little ways outside, in what the opening words of the chapter call the meeting place. It's a perfect stage, with Storm's End conveniently in the background, an isolated flat plot of land created for the kings to strut upon with their shadows on the wall. Of course, it didn't always look like this. Only days prior... They would have been standing in the middle of the woods. The castle would barely be visible, not nearly as striking. But now, Stannis has cut down the trees to make war on his own brother, his own family home, and that sets the tone for this chapter perfectly. While the showdown between Renly and Stannis is rooted word for word in their established characterizations and backstories, it also stands in for so much more. As is often the case in the standout scenes of A Song of Ice and Fire, we are seeing the most intimate articulation of a pattern we can find all over the story and backstory. Like Theon in Winterfell, or John Connington elsewhere in the Stormlands, Stannis is both homecomer and invader. He is both rightful heir and foreign conqueror. He officially belongs here, but it doesn't feel like he does, which is a precise inverse of Renly, who shouldn't be in charge here, but is and feels like it. Stannis cutting down the trees for his war machines in part speaks to his specific story how he continually converts the life within him into fury. Everything is fuel for the fire. But it also makes me think about the Andals and their war on the Weirwoods, chopping them down and burning them as Stannis will burn the Storms and Godswood once he gets inside. Stannis' campaign also closely echoes that of Aegon the Conqueror. He too was Lord of Dragonstone, sent out a bunch of letters declaring himself the King of all Westeros, squared off first against the Lord of Storm's End, and relied not on a large army, but on a magical black shadow. In Aegon's case, of course, it was his dragon, Balerion the Black Dread. So on one hand, Stannis is presenting himself as the rightful heir to Westeros, and to Storm's End for that matter, a restoration. On the other, with Melisandre at his side, and their brand new banner flying overhead, he represents the latest in a series of waves from the east crashing over and invading mainland Westeros. 
You captured that like dynamic of that foreignness of Stannis versus his like kind of Westerosi side and really well in that connection he got on the Conqueror. And just to add just a few more things that I was looking at and, and when I was reading this document, you know, a few days ago, you know, on the personal side, Aegon landed with his two sister wives, queens, both. Stannis also has two wives in the form of Selyse and Melisandre. Selyse is Stannis's legal wife and mother to his daughter, Shireen, but Stannis's relationship to her is frosty at best, which is really not that good to begin with. Anyone seen those Aegon Visenya parallels, people? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah, I'm seeing them. And it's, but it's a little bit different, that relationship between Stannis and Melisandre. It's hot. It's passionate. And as John will note later on, Lady Melisandre, Lady Melisandre wore no crown, but every man there knew she was Stannis Baratheon's real queen, not the homely woman he left to shiver at Eastwatch by the sea. Anybody getting that Aegon, Rainey's kind of like perspective people? I certainly am. Then we have the similarities in the size of the armies that Aegon and Stannis land on the Stormlands with, or land on King's Landing with in the form of Aegon. The World of Ice and Fire notes that Aegon may have had 3,000 when he landed at the mouth of the Blackwater, though he may have only had a few hundred as well. And Renly will later claim that Stannis has maybe 5,000 if he's being generous. And Stannis' army is of similar composition to Aegon's, cell swords, cell sails, and the sweepings of the Narrow Sea. The, the contrast, though, as we were talking about in the prologue in Davos's first chapter in, Clash, in The Clash of Kings, is that while Stannis is justified legally, perhaps even morally, he's being fueled creatively as an artist by his anger against a lifetime of real and perceived slights committed against him by his family. Aegon continues to be and will likely remain an emotional cipher. But Stannis is willing to burn the land around his ancestral home to the ground because he's hurting inside. Yeah, I, I mean, I know we'll talk about in the second part of this analysis on Catelyn 3 that there are tactical reasons for Stannis to be cutting down the trees, but that is likely not what is driving him at an emotional basic core level. I mean, to paraphrase Tacitus, Stannis is going to make a desert and call it his kingdom because he's prioritized mm. the crown as a band-aid to cover up his emotional wounds and his hurts and his anger. And this is why it's so important that come a storm of swords, Stannis will have a change of priorities and put the defense of the realm ahead of his crown. Though, as we'll talk about in a few years when we get to A Dance of Dragons, so much of that remains wrapped up in trying to be a better version of Robert, as his men constantly compare him to Robert behind his back. But for now, Stannis will have to make do with the the spitting image of Robert Baratheon arriving at Storm's End. And similar to what George is doing with Stannis, he's going to embed a ton of archetypal world-building framework in the form of Renly Baratheon. Those are some great points. Wonderful classical reference there. And yeah, the same deal is going on with Renly. In personal terms, he's the young upstart usurper, right? He's the new thumbing his nose at the old. But in this larger framework that I'm talking about, he represents the first men vis-a-vis the Andals coming in from the east. And then the Andals vis-a-vis the Targaryens coming in from the east. He is the old being swept away by the new. Renly is repeatedly associated with flowers, forests, the color green, You could even say he's the children of the forest, being swept away by the first men. Hmm. And these associations lend gravitas to this showdown. They enhance the sense that so much of the story is orbiting around this scene. Time is a wheel, as they say. But everything I'm talking about here is also relevant to the introduction of Storm's End, which gets a chunk of Catalan III to itself before the kings show up to fight over it. The story of Storm's End is the story of A Clash of Kings. The damage done when mortal men, thinking their crowns make them immortal, climb the fiery ladder. The forbidden love of Duran and Elenai echoes everything from Greek myths to the Silmarillion. It's all about power inflates emotions to disastrous levels. Because she is divine, her parents have the power to express their grief by sending a series of storms that kill, maim, and impoverish Duran's people. And because he is a king... He has the power to keep rebuilding in the same damn place anyway. Here the reference point feels more like Monty Python. These two forms of power, the political and magical forces we've been talking about in The Clash of Kings, 
batter each other again and again while the people suffer for it. There is nominally a happy ending here as Duran reaches the lucky number 7 and Bran the Builder pops up to help him build a castle that will last, and that links Storm's End to the Wall. But just as the Wall will fall to the winds of winter as blown by Euron, who declares himself to be the Storm, Storm's End will very shortly prove vulnerable to penetration by Davos and Melisandre. Yeah, I mean, like having the largest army, the strongest castle, and still losing, it's just one of those literary tropes that George uses to lull readers into that false sense of security about it. No, they know exactly how this is actually going to go down. No, the first time you're reading through this chapter, these chapters in A Clash of Kings, you really, really don't. And so when we encounter this Castle of Storm's End in Catelyn's third chapter in Clash, it feels impregnable. 100 foot high mm-hmm. walls, 40 to 80 inch thick walls, is monstrously large and major overkill if the intent is simply defense against any attack by land or the sea or the wind. You know, but I was thinking about this too as I was reading through this chapter and kind of like thinking about some comparisons and analogies in the way that George is kind of drawing some of these themes together. And it struck me that having those Arya Harrenhal chapters fresh in mind, you get a real kind of Harrenhal-esque vibe from the legendary founding of Storm's End and how the castle stands now. You know, we don't get those same awful details of Heron the Black enslaving the Riverlands to build this castle, but like, who were the laborers again who did seven versions of this castle? Was it the lords who were urging Durin not to stop build, to stop building? I don't think so. You think they were there because, you know, the peasants who were there building it because they were patriotic volunteers working on behalf of Durin <laughs> or a con- or a contracted workforce? I don't fucking think so, man. But like, you think they were unionized? I doubt it. <laughs> no way. Absolutely not. But like, like many legends and songs in Westeros in the real world, the darker aspects of the story were burst out later on. And you have to understand this too, because singers have to eat, man. You think any singer wants to write songs <laughs> that indict the legendary progenitors of the most powerful houses of Westeros and enslaving the small folk? Again, fuck no. But Harrenhal exists in a more recent past, right? It's the maesters who wrote the histories of the castle, its construction, and its destruction by Aegon the Conqueror. And Heron the Black was a vanquished lord of a hated line of ironborn kings. So singers and maesters both can take the piss out of Heron the Black, but they're not going to be writing an Irish ballad about Pate the Builder who fell to his death while standing down the sea-facing wall of Storm's End. No fucking way. You make such great points about considering the political and social context of storytelling, of songwriting. These, you know, these are not just artists who are just creating things to float into the ether. These are working <laughs> songwriters. Like I was talking about George being a working writer. Like they, they have to get paid. They have to appeal to their audience. And we see how that kind of plays out in relation to reality throughout the series. And I think George wants us to critically investigate these things to get to ask about this legend of Storm's End. Is this really a happy ending given all the, the chaos and loss that was endured along the way just for this one man's stubbornness? Was it worth all that defiance? And you can ask the same questions about Stannis. But you can also ask the same questions about Courtney Penrose, hmm. defying Stannis. So is Stannis the stubborn man under siege? Or is he the storm sweeping in off the sea to besiege Storm's End like the Andals and Targaryens before him? He's both, which fits his duality. As I've been saying throughout A Clash of Kings, the book presents Renly and Stannis as perfectly matched opposites, destined to come into fatal conflict. It's, it's the, the, the line from William Blake, you know, some are born to sweet delight and some are born to endless night. Renly starts in the Reach, the land of fairy tales and flowers, with his Disney princess bride <laughs> laughing and charming everyone. Stannis starts on Dragonstone, a volcano covered in gargoyles, with the wife he transparently hates urging him on to sorcery and kinslaying. The Stormlands are where they meet, and that's reflected in the environment. It feels like a combination of the two. On the one hand, the Stormlands are frequently associated and allied with the Reach, not just in Renly's campaign, but from their marcher wars against the Dornish to their likely mutual support for Young Grift, a.k.a. Renly (laughs) 2.0. 
On the other hand, the Stormlands are not nearly as wealthy or powerful as the Reach. The geography is meaner and more weathered in a way that seems linked to the storms, as if a curse. Storm's End is, of course, also linked to the Targaryens through the Baratheon bloodline. And this connects our setting for this chapter to Dragonstone as much as the Reach. It feels like both. It's as if Stannis and Renly both brought their aesthetics with them, and they blurred like two photo filters clashing. And that's fitting, because this is a homecoming for both of them. Storm's End is the cradle of their birth, the source of their original grievance. It ought to reflect both. And this is where the Baratheon brothers ought to be together. But the backstory of Storm's End ultimately communicates why they won't be. Because the defining trait of the Storm Kings established in that story is stubbornness. And both Renly and Stannis inherited that via Oris and Argella. Duran wouldn't give in to the gods, and Renly and Stannis won't give in to each other. No matter what. Absolutely, man. And this is also where George shines as a writer in creating the mythos of, his, of the Song of Ice and Fire. You know, there are some aspects of the legend that really piqued my interest on Riri. First, we can see this legend definitely predates the day Faith of the Seven, but it also may, it kind of seems like to me that it predates the first men and the old gods as well. We don't really get the sense of a sea god, a wind god coming, and a storm god as well, if you want to believe the Ironborn version of this coming from, from the old gods. So this is an old religion and an old story. And the, quote, sea god and the goddess of the wind may be an allusion to the drowned god too. So there's that possible connection there. And the wind of the waves, the godly pair sent against Duran might be an allusion to the constant war fought between the storm god, who in the Ironborn version is immortal and is a godly, godly deity being, as opposed to being a mor- mortal in this story, and the sea, as Aaron at Dampere is talking about back in A Feast for Crows. But while all the mythos are cool and shit and help give the world flavor. They're not merely spicing the meatball. They're the vital mild sausage that you mix in to get the complete meatball. I mean, what is this fucking metaphor? I don't even know, but it makes sense in my head. What I'm saying is that Duran and LNI and their war against the gods being uh, is not just cool backstory that flavors the world to make it seem lived in. I mean, it's vital to the present story between Stannis and Renly and Catelyn here. The gods retaliate against Duran for sending Elena, for stealing Elena's immortality by knocking down Storm's End and then Duran's rage against the gods for taking his castle is capturing pieces of both Renly and Stannis in these two chapters. Renly is Duran waging war against the laws of gods and men which set him backwards in the line of succession. Tis a fool's law, Renly is going to say in Cat- at the end of Catelyn's third chapter and as a challenge of in challenging Catelyn's assertions of Stannis' place ahead of him. Stannis is also Duran, raging against the gods, burning them on the shore of Dragonstone, raising his fist to the sky of the gods like the tower at Storm's End. And yet, he's also kind of the gods too, preparing to storm Storm's End and tear it down over his grief he feels over something or someone stolen from him, them. And he's also Elenai, giving up his mortal life or life force to achieve his heart's desire, Renly's death in Catelyn 4. And th- there's been an effort in recent years to kind of get at the dark heart of fairy tales. Tell it like it is. Don't Disneyfy it for us adults. And there's plenty of value in that in exploring the dark horror behind fairy tales. But I, I really like what George is doing here in Catelyn's third chapter in Clash. He's writing against a bit of that literary grain. The fairy tales are rather lighter versions of what's occurring in the present age, an age of wonder and terror, as you like to point out so often in this podcast, which I love. And into that age of wonder and terror steps a woman steeped in the past and future grief. Mm, so good, sir. And yes, into this mess of fraternal and historical grievances walks our POV. Catalan's role in the proceedings here is often reduced to that of a camera woman. And there is some truth to that. As Stephen Atwell noted in his essay on this chapter, one of his best ones, by the way, Catalan proclaiming that only Rob is lifting a sword to defend the realm doesn't quite square with Rob's story, or hers for that matter. Like, Rob is not defending the realm. Rob is defending his chunk of it. 
Their stories are far more about how their desire for family and home comes into conflict with the specific ideology of northern independence. Of the five kings, Stannis' story is the one that deals with the concept of duty to the whole realm. Hmm. So maybe George just needed someone in the scene to point out that Stannis and Renly are shirking their duties, and Catelyn fills that role even if it's a little out of character. For the most part, though, I think Catelyn's presence in this scene is distinct and vital. It builds on the themes and moods of her previous chapter in this book, and it adds important context to the intra-Baratheon feud we are seeing unfold. Catelyn's guards don't want to be here, just as with Ariane when she journeys to, the, journeys to the Stormlands in Winds of Winter. But despite having misgivings about the mission to the south in the first place, she is determined to see it through now that she's down here. And Catelyn sees her mission as forcing these brothers to get along, which is so beautifully rooted in her character as a politically outspoken mother figure. Yeah, it, it really is. That's why I want to argue that it's not necessarily out of character. Uh, not to argue against Stephen Atwell, because God, who am I to argue against against that man, the legend <laughs> that is Steve Atwell? I mean, when we look back at Catelyn in A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings and her conversations with Rob, she's really blunt with him. Though she's always very careful not to wound his pride in times that she wants to guide him towards a particular direction. But we're not in Catelyn's familiar surroundings anymore. Winterfell is thousands of leagues away. Riverrun is probably a thousand plus leagues to the northwest. She's not here to give a beloved son a piece of mom's mind. She's here to work as an ostensible, ostensible, we'll talk about that, neutral party to bring one or both of these brothers into alliance with Rob Stark. So Catelyn adopts an observation-oriented role. She hardly knows Renly, she notes, and she barely knows Stannis either and hasn't seen either of them in years. So she tries her best to figure out the player and the players in the game at work. This is why I said back in Catelyn's first chapter in Clash of Kings that Catelyn is just as canny of a political actor as Tyrion is, for one singular reason, she can read a fucking room. And Catelyn has some unique political gifts she's bringing to the table as a diplomat in service to her son Rob's cause. You make a very fair point. We're going to talk later about Renly's political signaling changing depending where he goes, who he's talking to, and Catelyn is doing a version of that as well. And she's, she has to do that because she's moving among so many different camps in this book, so many different leaders, so many different kings. The opening shot, so to speak, of Catelyn's story in A Clash of Kings was a close-up on her son's new crown, as he nervously adjusted its unfamiliar weight on his head. That established right away the central thrust of her chapters in this book. They are all about symbols of power and the flawed, frightened manchildren underneath. This extends beyond the kings to Edmure and Jaime upon Catelyn's return to Riverrun later in the book. This interrogation of shadows on a wall started with Rob in Catelyn 1 and continued in Catelyn 2, all of the layers to Renly's presentation of himself and his army we talked about with Lady Gwyn. Catelyn brings a complex perspective to these power plays. She is skeptical of every move for reasons both rational and primal. She is informed by both intelligence and instinct. On the one hand, she comes closer to an objective view than the devoted partisans in both Baratheon camps. On the other, everything she sees and takes part in in the South is filtered through her own backstory, her own grief and growing dread. That's why we started Catelyn too with that, with that wistful, bittersweet dream of hers. George fits Catelyn's character beats snugly inside the larger plot points like a Russian nesting doll. The sick feeling in the back of her throat rises throughout the book to match a war that is growing wider and weirder and more out of her control. In her first two chapters, we went one king at a time. Catelyn 1 focused on Rob. Catelyn 2 focused on Renly. Catelyn 3 ramps things up by bringing two kings together for the only time in the book. But first, as we will focus on this week, <laughs> King Stannis gets the spotlight. Catelyn, with her political mind at work, immediately notes the cultural symbols at play in Stannis' presentation of himself. 
She knows that this is not merely a family reunion, though the very personal grievances of the Baratheon bros often make it feel that way. This is an audition for power, in which every detail matters, in which every choice is significant because all the world is a stage. We are not the only audience here. So Catelyn knows that it matters that Renly, not Stannis, is flying the rich gold color of the Baratheon crown stag. And just as a reminder, this was not quite the sigil that Renly was flying at Bitterbridge when he was in the Reach. There, his banner was the Baratheon sigil in Tyrell colors, in green. But here in the story, he's back to using traditional Barath- He's back to using the traditional Baratheon banner. Renly is a chameleon, for lack of a better term. He's shifting the optics of his campaign to appeal to the broadest number of people. And wherever Renly goes, he's kind of engaging in some sort of like regional tokas, if you want to use that term. When he's in the Reach, he becomes the model of chivalry, slowly plodding across the pastoral landscape. He relies on his beautiful, as you call it, her Disney wife and princess family, their gold, their flowers and harvests, and he merges the Baratheon sigil with his own. But Stannis is at the gates of Storm's End, who unfurls the traditional Baratheon banner and abandons the slow march to King's Landing. He races his cavalry from Bitterbridge to Storm's End. He's Robert Baratheon, though, as Catelyn is going to note towards the end of this chapter, Renly is Robert without Ned. And that is a very important distinction between Renly and Robert. The contrast to Renly, though, is Stannis, a guy whose standard bearer holds a brand new sigil and is also adopting a brand new religion, but he can't hide who he is and he can't hide that anger and pain he feels at his family. I think you made the distinction exactly right. Renly is constantly changing, but that also reflects his ability to read his audience. Stannis is more admiral in a way because he always puts forward the same banner, but also it's the wrong one. (laughs) Stannis' banner is yellow, not gold. Less rich and more rage. More to the point, the crown stag is shrunken and on fire. Melisandre that this declares that this signifies a choice on Relor's part, that the Lord of Light has blessed Stannis, and her presence as his standard bearer reflects that. But what Catelyn and George care about is the political choices Stannis has made, and it's very telling that he has set Robert's symbol, the symbol of his own crown, on fire. Mm-hmm. This is the core contradiction of Stannis' campaign, captured in his heraldry. He is ostensibly doing all of this for Robert, the legacy of the crowned stag, but he is full of unresolved rage about his relationship to Robert and the crown he wore. He has all but literally set his heart on fire, not because he doesn't care about love, but because it was never returned to him. It's the essence of great tragedy, that metaphorical fire within. The building head of steam Crescent glimpsed on Dragonstone, it turns Stannis' victories to ash and leads him step by step to the literal fire that claims Shireen. He's made a deal with the devil, and those backfire. And that's not to say that Stannis and Melisandre are symbols of pure evil. They're not, so much as they are symbols of temptation, good ideals led astray. Stannis grasps his goals so tightly that they turn to steam between his fingers, and his fiery rage toward Robert has allowed Renly... Robert's ghost, the Robert of his rebellion glory days reborn, to steal the banner, the army, and the crown. Yep. Davos will lament Stannis' quote, stranger's banner at the Blackwater, and there's a double meaning there. This banner not only makes them foreigners to a city that might welcome the return of a true Baratheon, it also evokes the stranger, the god of death. That's how Sansa describes Stannis at the Blackwater, and that's how Catelyn feels about him after witnessing Renly's death. You can also see that concept with Renly's Rainbow Guard, rooted in faith symbolism, or the seven castles of Storm's End. 
Stannis has rejected the faith of his fathers, burned them on the beach where Aegon began his fiery conquest, and so transformed himself into a fearsome figure within that faith, the shadow of the gods, as well as the shadow of a crown. That's amazingly said. I, I love, whatever you talk about Stannis, it's just outstanding. I just love it so, so much. Likewise, sir. I appreciate that. I and, But I, honestly, like, I... I talked about this on Twitter earlier today, but you're like the most erudite person when it comes to talking about themes in A Song of Ice and Fire, but you're especially erudite when you come to talking about Stannis. And I really, really appreciate hearing that every single week, because we talk about Stannis every single week on this this podcast. True, we try. That's that's true. (laughs) But I was thinking about some more bullshit about Stannis as the stranger, because I love this idea, both in the text as well as you were kind of elucidating earlier before. And I think you're spot on. I mean, there's a note in the Wiki of Ice and Fire, which really speaks to this idea, which is, the quote is, worshippers rarely seek favor from the stranger, but outcasts sometimes associate themselves with this aspect of God. Holy shit, is that Stannis or what, man? And then later in Feast, Cersei promises to light a candle to the stranger for ridding her of Renly. And exactly. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. who actually rid, you know, the realm of Renly? It, it was the stranger. It was Stannis. So George R. R. Martin's sense of irony is for real, man. And then in an off-sided line about how awesome Stannis is in A Dance of Dragons, we get this. No sooner had the sound of the war horn died away than a drum began to beat. Boom, doom, boom, doom, boom, doom. And a name passed from the lips of each man to the next, written in small, white puffs of breath. Stannis, they whispered. Stannis is here. Stannis has come. Stannis. 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 I mean, mean, tell me that boom, doom, boom, doom is not drums of the deep calling from the great beyond for Lord Bolton to come out and die. And it's also a callback to the Red Wedding, too. Yay, we're only about a year and a half from that on the Outcast podcast. Oh, my God. Ultimately, people in Westeros generally regard the stranger and Stannis negatively. But this manifestation of the seven natures of God serves a purpose, making living people dead. That's what the stranger does. <laughs> and boy, can we see that in the, as a major role for Stannis as the Dance of Dragons closes, killing every last goddamn Frey and Bolton in and around Winterfell to clear the way for the Starks to ascend. Westeros may not have any interest in the stranger or in Stannis or being led by a symbolic manifestation on Earth, namely Stannis. But the stranger and Stannis are always going to take an interest in you, sir. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Mm-hmm. But for the moment, Catelyn is dealing not with mystical revelations. That will wait for Catelyn 4. She is dealing with the Game of Thrones, which she refers to as the sort of games kings play. And it's worth noting... While we are trying to reset the calcified conversation on Stannis Baratheon, who is generally seen as a very unreasonable man, Renly is, if anything, being more petty and unreasonable here. He is the one who shows up late just to show that he can, as Catelyn thinks to herself, clearly annoyed by his immaturity. It's a microcosm of how Renly dawdled his way up the Rose Road, another sign that Renly's political strategy was crafted in the Reach, where you waste time and resources to show off your wealth. And while Stannis is visibly unhappy that Catelyn <laughs> refers to him as a lord instead of a king, Renly is the one who will insist out loud that Stannis call him king. This is in spite of the fact that Renly is responsible for the lion's share, so to speak, <laughs> of their political division, something he simply refuses to acknowledge. That being said, Stannis seems determined to take the most self-pitying and unsympathetic <laughs> view on everything and squanders every advantage he has. As we as readers realize as this scene goes on, as we will talk about more next week, Catelyn's unexpected presence at Storm's End is a gigantic opportunity for Stannis. As he will say later, most of Renly's lords are opportunists and bandwagon jumpers, with no real cause and only a skin-deep objection to the Lannisters in the first place. Joffrey's lords fight for him out of either belief he's the rightful Baratheon king, or more likely just a history of following Tywin, neither of which Stannis can do much about right now. But Rob's followers, 
Now, they have a lot in common with Stannis politically, mm. while also a lot of important differences. And this is a constant throughout Stannis' story, this in-between relationship with Team Stark. Ned goes down swinging for Stannis, but his vassals don't know that and choose independence. Stannis marches alongside Northmen to liberate Winterfell in a dance with dragons, but few think they're going to stick with him long term. Stannis hesitates in the Storm of Swords before burning the leech representing Rob, which he does not do for Joffrey or Balin Greyjoy. But he goes ahead and does it all the same. <laughs> I think all of that is George laying the groundwork for the rejection Stannis will feel when the Northmen choose Jon over him, when they move him definitively into the no category, when Jon, the only Stark Stannis ever got along with, rejects him in favor of his own crown. It'll be one more rejection, one more example of no one loving him despite all his efforts, and I think that might be what pushes him over the edge regarding Shireen. But anyway, <laughs> as it stands in The Clash of Kings, Stannis really should recognize his good luck here and seize the chance to make nice with Catelyn, and therefore her son, the King in the North. Sure, Rob is technically in rebellion against the Baratheon crown, and everyone knows he's in this to fight and defeat the Lannisters, specifically. They killed his father. They have his sister. They've been burning out the Riverlands to try and draw him into battle. While Rob and his lords are all about independence as it stands, that could change, depending on the outcome of the fight for the Iron Throne itself, and how the victor treats Rob and his supporters along the way. Renly clearly had that in mind in Catelyn too when he was treating with Catelyn, but Stannis, for once, has more fertile ground to work with. His claim to power is at the Viper Pit that swallowed up Catelyn's husband and daughters also swallowed up his brother and John Aaron, and he knows why, and that's why they want him dead too. That is a compelling narrative for a political coalition. Put me in power, Stannis should say to Catelyn, because I have been preparing for this fight. Renly and the Tyrells, they're not serious. This is a polo match against the Lannisters for them. This is brunch. I'm a serious man. My enemies are yours. I will deliver you justice. Isn't that worth sacrificing your son's crown, heavy as it lies on his young head? Now, Catelyn will almost convince herself of this <laughs> over the course of her next few chapters. She'll be like, eh, maybe we should bend the knee to Stannis. But the point is she has to do it herself because Stannis doesn't do it. He doesn't make the case. I mean, he does in the narrowest and most <laughs> self-serving of senses. He says Ned didn't deserve to die. He says that as king he will avenge him. He says he will send home cat's girls. But nothing about how he says it is convincing, or works to foster a bond between himself and Catelyn. He fails to give her a sense of a national community that she would want to rejoin. Just as he was talking to Cresson in the prologue, and he was saying things that objectively said he cared about Cresson, but nothing about the way he was communicating it made that clear. Like when Catelyn thinks to herself that Stannis' tone suggests that he'll find Arya and Sansa's little corpses <laughs> when he shows up in King's Landing. What about Stannis' tone had to suggest that. How bad is your tone when it suggests I'm thinking about your children being murdered? Like, he is peevish, hostile, and keeps throwing in completely unnecessary signs that undermine his position and alienate Catelyn instead of winning her over. In the same breath that he tells her that Ned's execution was unjust, yes, good, say that, mm -hmm. he says that Ned was no friend of mine. Why would you say that? <laughs> Why on earth would you bring that up at all? This is a natural ally, and you are telling her to her face that she's not. In spite of this terrible opening move, Catelyn still tries to get Stannis on her side by talking about when Ned relieved the siege. Remember that, Stannis, when we were all on the same team? By evoking Ned relieving Stannis at Storm's End, she is trying to get Stannis to think about the old Robert's Rebellion Coalition. 
Aaron, Tully, Baratheon, and Stark. The Aarons are out of it for now, more on John Aaron later on, but the rest of the gang can get back together if Catelyn makes it happen here and now. But Stannis doesn't think about it that way, because his claim, because despite his claim being centered on Robert's legacy, this isn't about that coalition to him. It's about the family and entire realm that made mock of him, denied him love and legacy of his own, a lot of which were members of that coalition, <laughs> so that doesn't make him happy. Yeah, I, I, I see your points. I absolutely do. But I'm going to take the unenviable position of saying that Stannis' hostility towards Catelyn isn't entirely unfounded. Uh, sorry about that in advance. Though, you know, Stannis is, surpri- Stannis is surprised to see Catelyn here. He's smart enough to make the logical assumption that she came with Renly, which Stannis takes to mean the Starks are supporting Renly. It's why he's going to ask Catelyn if the Starks have actually thrown in with Renly towards the end of their first conversation. Now, Catelyn doesn't intend to communicate that she's on Renly's side, but let's let's take a, a step back, right? Let's take a step back. Who did Catelyn suggest negotiating with first back in Catelyn's first chapter in Clash? Renly. From a purely tactical standpoint perspective, Catelyn's suggestion to Brendan Tully back in Catelyn 1 that they go for Renly was a smart, still a smart choice. Renly is closer to Tywin and he has the larger army. And Stannis has not publicly declared his kingship and the bastion of Cersei's children until after Catelyn departs River Run. It's why she is later stunned at the second part of this chapter, as we'll get to next week, when Stannis talks about this very topic. So Stannis does bear some of the blame for not having moved fast enough, as, we ta- as we've talked about several times now. Regardless, though, of the tactics of treating with Renly, the optics of Catelyn being there is sending a signal to Stannis that the Starks have no interest in Stannis' legal right to the kingship. So he's sarcastic, tossing aside to Catelyn because Rob and Catelyn aren't just in tactical rebellion against his crown. They're demonstrating that they have thrown in with Renly indeed, if not in word. Stannis is throwing the bullshit card on Catelyn's the true the king of the North supports no one but only declares a free and independent kingdom for himself because Catelyn is metaphorically standing alongside of his younger usurping brother who has brought an army to fucking kill Stannis. And look, Stannis' hashtag objectively wrong about Catelyn here. She is a true neutral in the conflict, but I actually completely understand where Stannis is coming from. I know, surprise, surprise, I understand where Stannis is coming from in this conversation. I think if you frame diplomacy as an act of treason, you're making peace impossible. (laughs) I don't think it's indicated that Catelyn has joined Renly by her showing up. If Catelyn and Rob had thrown in with Renly, they wouldn't need to be here because Renly would be speaking for them. Hmm. They would be at Renly's back. The very fact that she's here before Renly shows up says that she's not working with Renly. Yeah, she was an emissary for Renly. Rob sent emissaries to the Lannisters too. Is this is this a, a capital crime now? I understand why it feels that way to Stannis, but I think that has way more to do with how he's responding to Renly than it is a, a rational read on the situation. And and I think it all, it all gets summed up so well when Stannis cuts himself off from Stark support with a line that defines him as a character. Kings have no friends, only subjects and enemies. First of all, This is transparently not the case unless Stannis is claiming to rule the entire world. The free cities are neither subjects nor enemies, for example. Wouldn't you want them to be your friends? I think readers who come away believing that Stannis is a duty robot are taking lines like this one too literally. Because it's transparently ridiculous, so you have to peel it back to see what he's really talking about. It's a front. It's not what he's really driving at. It's not what's really driving Stannis on. When he says that kings have no friends... What he's really saying is that he has no friends, Mm -hmm. and he believes that he has no friends because he is fundamentally unlovable, and he believes that because Robert, and now Renly, never loved him. This personal backstory has irreparably shaped Stannis' politics and informs his entire campaign. 
On the one hand, he does offer a more grounded justification of himself to Catelyn. You are frank, Lady Stark. Very well, I'll answer you frankly. To take the city, I need the power of these Southron lords I see across the field. My brother has them. I must needs take them from him. <laughs> and you can see Stannis' appreciation for hard truths, and a glimpse of how he and Catelyn could get along, as people who enjoy the chance to say what they think. Stannis is right, as we've said before, that while he might have enough men to take King's Landing from the Lannisters, he doesn't have enough to hold it. Renly does have enough men. I need them. It's a simple math problem. Everyone get in line. This bluntness is hilarious, and I do think it's relatable, but it's obscuring the deeper problems with Stannis' approach and how his emotional grievances rule him. If all Stannis is doing here, as he says, is trying to get enough men before he moves on to the true threat of the Lannisters, why is he not appealing to Catelyn? Rob has those men too. Why dismiss her with a line like, kings have no friends? Moreover, once Stannis has some of Renly's men after his death, he lingers to deal with Storm's End itself mm. rather than move on to the capital at once, as he says he will here, as Davos urges him to. Why does he do that? Because Stannis believes that since he is incapable of being loved, he must rule through fear. And no one will fear him if he lets Courtney Penrose live. So Catelyn telling him he has no real quarrel with Renly because, you know, men give their allegiance where they will, as they did with Robert. That only makes Stannis angrier, because men giving their allegiance to his brothers, and not him, is his whole problem. That is the core of Stannis' motivation here. It's not defeating the Lannisters. It's not even taking the crown in itself. What drives him is the hole inside where respect and community and family and love should be. And he will fill that hole by any means necessary. Mm, I love that. That's awesome. That's really well said. And it's also so telling when we come to Davos' second chapter in, in The Clash of Kings, Stannis is going to go way out of his way to be like, I absolutely loved Renly. He knows this now. He absolutely knows this. And that he frames his relationship to Renly that way post facto evidences what you're talking about, that he wants to be loved and to have friends and was always denied both of those things, especially by his family. And honestly, I think he means that he loves Renly in some sort of weird, fucked up way. He has a really a social way of demonstrating it in conversation and indeed by like sending a fucking shadow baby after after Renly. And, you know, let's get a little bit weird about this. Anyway, years ago, there's an author by the name of Gary Chapman who wrote a seminal book called The Five Love Languages, in which he talked about the five love languages and how everyone has a love language that they give and a love language that they want to receive, namely words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time and physical touch. The love language that Stannis gives, his family especially, is acts of service, but the one he wants to receive is words of affirmation. I mean, just mm -hmm. look at the way he talks about his grievances back in a clash in the Clash King's prologue. I held storms in for him, watching good men starve while Mace Terrell and Paxter Redblind feasted within sight of my walls. Did Robert thank me? No. He thanks Stark for lifting the siege when we were down to rats and radishes. I built a fleet at Robert's command, took Dragosota's name. Did he take my hand and say, well done, brother, whatever should I have done without you? No. He blamed me for letting Willem Derry steal away Viserys and the babe as if I could have stopped it. I sat on his council for 15 years, helping John Aaron rule his realm while Robert drank and hoard. But when John died, did my brother name me his hand? No. He went galloping off to his dear friend Ned Stark and offered him the honor. You know, I was thinking about this in context, that line from, from the prologue and what we're seeing here in Catelyn's third chapter, in the context of how Stannis reacts to Davos smuggling onions and fish into Storm's End. He rewards Davos with a promotion to knighthood and later lordship, as well as with lands and titles. Stannis is doing to Davos what he wishes he would have received from Robert in the past and wishes he would receive from Renly now in the present. And there's something kind of haunting in all that. I mean, he's given so much for his brothers, saving the toddler Renly's life at the Siege of Storm's End, undertaking dangerous missions on behalf of Robert, and assuming thankless small council positions and tasks. 
So why, why can't they love him back? Why, why can't they say, thank you for doing the shit work, brother. We really appreciate it. Or you were actually the king after Robert. My bad. So, so would say Renly in my imagined fantasy world. And, and I think that's the context that we should take when we roll our eyes at Stannis' claim that kings, namely he, has no friends. The sad thing for Stannis is that he does have friends. At least one. Davos. That, that is his actual true friend. That's the guy he's, when he returns, when Davos returns in a storm of swords after being presumed dead, that Stannis will say, I have missed you. That's his mm-hmm. actual friend. So he is not being honest with himself about, he's not being honest with himself about kings having no friends, but he is reflecting how he is experiencing the world around him and how his entire life has been felt, has felt friendless and loveless throughout. You made such important points there that it's important to look at Stannis and not think, oh, he's just emotionless and just cold. But he has a very specific emotional language in terms of what he gives and what he wants. And I think that's pretty plain on the surface when you when you look at his story as a whole. And you make a great point about Davos because, you know, how, how well Stannis is doing depending is depends on how much he listens to Davos and how much he respects mm. that that relationship and takes it seriously. And of course, we're gonna have a lot more to say about that when we get to a, another Davos chapter coming up at Storm's End. So moving on to foreshadowing and groundwork. All this talk of Storm's End and its impenetrability against even the gods will pay off in Davos 2, when Melisandre requires the Onion Knight to row her past the castle's magical defenses before she can give birth to her horrible child. Oh, yes. It's so creepy and spooky. It's one of my favorite magical scenes. And I do remember mm-hmm. like an early review from season two, because I was only reading the reviews back then. I had read the books about how this was like the turn for a Song of Ice and Fire where things became magical. And even then I was like, wait a minute, didn't Danny give birth to dragons? But that's OK. Back in season one, that's OK. We're just going to move past it. But yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And along like similar wavelengths in, in A Dance with Dragons, John Kind will call Storm's End nigh impregnable. So similar to Melisandre, he's going to have to use guile to infiltrate the castle on young Griff's behalf and take the castle mm. from Stannis's loyal banner in the the last 200 or so that are still left in the castle after Stannis heads north. Yes, that's going to be a, a wonderful experience, both the, the excitement of getting inside Storm's End and then the, the tension of whatever trick John Khan's going to have to pull off to get inside. That's going to be great. Mm-hmm. So Stannis uh, makes this, you know, grudging promise to Catelyn to return Arya and Sansa if he finds them in King's Landing. And he will make a similar I'll return your relatives promise to John in A Dance with Dragons before he, he marches on Winterfell, telling John that he'll save Arya who he thinks is Arya, if he can. <laughs> and much as Catelyn thinks that Stannis' tone implies alive or dead in this chapter, John will think Stannis' statement a surprisingly tender sentiment from Stannis, though undercut by that final <laughs> brutal if I can. And again, this is why I say that Stannis is, best, is the best written character in the story for me, because it's just every moment is like this, like this glimpse of humanity, and there's like, nope. <laughs> like they have this, this iron wall comes crashing down and says, I will find your sister if I can. But maybe I'll find her corpse. I'll get to Winterfell and Ramsay will have killed her. Bye. Love Stannis. It, it's just wonderful. Do you think it's like deliberate on his part that he's like he's, he thinks about yeah. this? Like he's like going through. He's like, OK, I'm going to rescue your sister. He's like, I'm the noble hero. I'm going to rescue your sister. Oh, only if I can. I need to be completely honest with you. It's not likely this is going to happen. So I feel like I should add this to the letter. So it's, uh, to, me, to me, it feels deliberate on Stannis' part that he, he's inserting these clauses and this tone in Catelyn's case to ensure that like if he doesn't actually come up with the with the actual living daughter of 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 Catelyn Tully that he's he has an out saying look look I implied that she was probably not going to make it ultimately. Yeah, that's a great point, and I'm sure Stannis would just say I'm just being honest. But what is what's really going on is emotional, like self distancing, like preemptively cutting himself off from bonding with somebody because he assumes that everyone's not going to love him and everyone's just going to make him hurt. <laughs> uh, it's just it's just it's just flawless characterization. Yeah, he may be well be the best written character in Song of Ice and Fire, and at least in the past you know thirty years of fiction as well, all of fiction. 
Final little piece Damn of right. foreshadowing groundwork here is we got Catelyn noting the square cut ruby at the, uh, the, the hilt of Stannis' sword. And this is going to come up in A Dance with Dragons in a little bit of a different way as the glamoured as rattle shirt Mance Raider will call attention to the ruby to Jon in their conversation. And then Melisandre is later going to have one in her chapter and be consistently referencing it. And though we don't know the full extent of the magic at work within those rubies and those cut square cut stones, this is likely the mechanism where glamours originate. And here in Catelyn's third chapter, we didn't get to it for, for this week, but the square cut ruby in the hilt of Stannis' sword was likely how Melisandre was then able to later glamour Stannis' sword, red, yellow, and white, when Stannis draws it later in this chapter, when he's, you know, thundering about that, yeah, I am not without mercy, as this magic sword is flying through the air. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting way that George is, like, doing this one little thing, this detail here that he later gives a whole lot more meaning, which is a really smart and fun way that George gardens potentially gardens I don't know if he always had this in mind but I imagine it's probably more like gardening on the, on the gardening on George's behalf in order to, to make this magical thing happen it's still really not clear what's going on with Lightbringer and how many Lightbringers there have been because <laughs> there was that one Lightbringer on the beach that seemed to be destroyed so it's hard to imagine this is the same sword and it seems to have different properties and has different colors at different times which might be reflecting different magic or it might be different swords we don't know because so much of the Stanless and Melisandre relationship happens, you know, off camera, deliberately so. So maybe we'll get more explication on that through Melisandre POV chapters. Maybe we won't. We'll see. We shall absolutely so, see. Moving on to our uh, discussion portion for the episode. Jeff, I think we all have the same question, rereading this chapter and its introduction of Storm's End. When is this castle gonna take off? Because <laughs> it's a spaceship, right? This is, I'm, I'm looking at you. you know, I'm, looking at you. I'm, I'm uh-huh. looking at you right now, sir. What are your questions? I, I have, Answer me. I, I have, it's a spaceship. <laughs> Storm's End is a spaceship. It's a spaceship from Star Trek. You know, like we were, when we were doing that that brand chapter for our last live stream or two live streams, I can't remember which one it was, but we did the whole fact of of the Blood Raven not being the Three Eyed Crow as our like bad, ugly theory that we were going to dispute and destroy. And that was a, that's a theory that I feel like a lot of like passion for because I feel like the George has very you know explicitly stated that you know Blood Raven is in fact the Three Eyed Crow, and you know. George has not explicitly stated that Storm's End is not a magical spaceship, intergalactic spaceship that is going to be traveling through time and space through a wormhole or something like that. So it's completely possible, right? No, no, it's not, guys. Okay. It's a fun theory that I think has absolutely no basis in reality. And I think it gets to a wider discussion about A Song of Ice and Fire, which is something that's creeped up in the fandom in many years, in the years since the publication of A Dance of Dragons. Namely, a little bit of genre confusion about this series. Is it actually fantasy or is it science fiction? And I think there's a real clear distinction and difference between the two. George has talked about that A Song of Ice and Fire is fantasy it is not science fiction and people have said like okay well then it's a it's a fantasy series set in a sci-fi world the thousand world series and george said no it's not set in the thousand world series so i feel like a lot of these like kind of silly ish theories that are not necessarily provoke a lot of passion within me george has answered this time and time again i think there is and maybe i'll turn it over to you would you think there is an actual distinction between fantasy and science fiction and do you think when you because i know you've read a bunch of george's other works do you think there's a distinction between stuff that george has written in the science fiction world and what a song of ice and fire is i think every book you read slightly changes your understanding of what genres are because every time you read a new book you're going to have a little more information and a little more feeling and a little more associations with the what the word fantasy and science fiction and horror really are. And your understanding of that is going to evolve. You're going to find lots of hybrids. And if you're a writer, you don't... 
again, you we might sit down and think of, I'm going to write for this audience, for a mm. more fantasy audience. But when you're actually creating, it's not like, and here's the horror part. <laughs> that's that's just not accurate to the, to the, to the creative process. So I, I don't think it's, it's relevant to say, you know, a song of ice and fire is fantasy, although it is. I don't think that's the strongest argument against this theory. I think the strongest argument against this theory is this, this like just rips the undergirding out from everything mm. and makes it mean nothing anymore. And that's not the kind of twist George tends to go for. His twists aren't nihilistic. They are, are tragic and galvanizing in, mm. in structure. And they, they, they make you excited to go back and reread where Storm's End is a spaceship means the previous five books were a giant middle finger. <laughs> and that that particular distinction, it might seem subjective or minute, but I think it's one of the huge distinctions between good stories and bad stories. And, you know, it, it's a reason some some shows, their twists are legend and live on forever, and some make people go, oh, what, really? This this feels like a waste of time for watching it now. You know, it's that Storm's End as a spaceship is that kind of twist, even putting aside the logistics of it. Just in terms of the, the kind of the, the genre confusion stuff you were talking about, you know, George draws from lots of different genres hmm. when he when he goes into A Song of Ice and Fire. But the reveal that it was a secret one all along, I, I just don't see that as his approach as a writer generally and definitely not within this series. I think there's a good point that you brought up there, too, is like that we have five published books in A Song of Ice and Fire. If George comes out in The Winds of Winter and places these books within the context of The Thousand Worlds or says that it's science fiction or that says that Storm's End is a spaceship. It does kind of speak to this idea that what we've read so far doesn't really mean anything that ultimately, I mean, it means something, but ultimately in terms of the genre, it doesn't have a lot of ultimate meaning. It it would only be something that would be like a wink and a nod from George for people that have read like the Thousand Worlds series, which is not many people, which is fine. You guys should read some of the books set in the Thousand Worlds series. They're a lot of fun. And that kind of wink and nod stuff is what George typically does in A Song of Ice and Fire is things like references to authors that he loves, you know, House Tour being one of those houses in A Song of Ice and Fire that is a reference to Robert Jordan. He also have House Jordan, Jordan too, which is another reference to Robert Jordan. So right, so I, I don't find these theories that convincing at all, but I, I don't I don't hate them necessarily. I just think that it would would kind of cheapen the effect of of what has been established in the narrative so far. You know, Storm's End is a fist up to God, up to the gods, saying "fuck you" to the gods. That feels much more relevant for us for a fantasy series than, say, a science fiction series, which a lot of in a lot of ways doesn't have the presence of gods. It is mostly alien and subjected to kind of a technological focus, which is fine. And the the genres, and like you were saying really well, the, the genres can be mixed up, and George does mix up a lot of genres. But I do think that a theory like this one does not the best work for for doing kind of bend for doing that kind of genre bending stuff that George sometimes does in a song of ice and fire. Well, it, but it's useful to, in terms of talking about what genre is exactly because the most cynical term, most cynical way to think about it is it's purely a marketing tool. Hmm. And that is that is true to a huge degree, especially when you get to like the the minute like three hyphen musical genres people will toss around to each other that are just absurd. You know, that's just that's just niche marketing formulas. But it is interesting to think about it in terms of community and in terms of ways of looking at information and texts and the world around you and what that leads you to find important in a series. People who come to A Song of Ice and Fire as horror fans and fans of military history, as we've seen in this podcast, just take very different things away from it. And that's not to say they can't be complimentary, of course. But the, the, the stuff like even objectively silly theories like this one make me think those thoughts and make me think... Just how interesting it is that the genres are not these static, stable things. They are hmm. paths. 
They are journeys you take. Science fiction is a mode of evolving understanding. Fantasy is a growth process in your mind and soul. That's what these things are. And I think even even bad theories help you think about that stuff. And I like that. See, this is why you're the erudite part of this podcast, sir. You put these these shush. I am. I'm not. I'm not just like praising to the high heavens because I can. I'm doing it because it's true and it's righteous and it's moral. Ah, so good. So I really appreciate you every single week. And I think likewise, pal. Thanks, man. And I think that about wraps up for this episode on part one of a Clash Kings Catlin three. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere, everywhere you find our podcasts. Can check out our uh, Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. Follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at Quentin on Twitter or poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Brendan P. Fish on Twitter, Brendan P. Fish on Reddit, and my website is Wars and Politics, Vice and Fire.wordpress.com. We want to thank and shout out our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Narrabald the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim the Knight who was gathered by voices, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mark Connington, Heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, and Septon, Mariful Head Affair. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies. Absolutely. Thank you folks very, very much. We really appreciate your support. So, join us next week as we cover the rest of this chapter in which Stannis and Renly finally face off. Man, I cannot wait. This is like... This is like the literally the middle of, of a Clash of Kings in terms of the audiobook because again I, I can't read. So it's like the time code is right at the middle of the story, and this is like just the focus of it. This feels like the heart of the story for real. Amen, brother. It's the <laughs> absolute center of a Clash of Kings. I love it so much. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for those of you who are watching. And if you guys are watching again, we will be doing a live cast for next week for the second part of a Clash Kings Catlin 3. Hope you guys turn in there. Take care. <laughs>